uh, as we follow along in open here, we come to the book of Song of Solomon. And it's the entire book of the Bible that's devoted to erotic and sexual love. And so, um, is anyone uncomfortable yet? Um, are you probably wondering, are we really going to talk about sex this morning? And, and you think you feel awkward. Um, I mean, I invite you to know, come up here. Uh, I'm the one who's got the awkward job this morning. And this isn't a topic that we feel particularly comfortable with talking about. I mean, at least not in this setting, right? I mean, maybe, maybe in the locker room or the occasional girls' night. But, but this isn't a topic we normally feel all that comfortable talking about. And so otherwise, this is kind of how we typically respond uh, to this issue. Watch. Where do babies come from? Uh, oh, well, there's a, th- th- there's a planet. It's called Babylandia. That's right, it's filled with babies. Uh-huh, babies of all kinds. And when the time is just right, there's a space launch. All systems go. <clears throat> they wave goodbye, and then they, they board these big, shiny rocket ships, right? shoot off high in the sky and they fly through space and then they they penetrate the atmosphere and then they're released all over the place yeah africa the the indian ocean uh well everywhere after an amazing nine month journey they find their mommies and daddies and that son is where babies come from but Jake said babies are made when mommies and daddies... You go. Play with us on the bus. Well, wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. Wheels on the bus go round and round. I mean, let's be honest, uh, honest here. I mean, none of us probably are that comfortable talking about sex, and, and well, at least not our own sex lives, and, and certainly not on Sunday morning in church uh, in mixed company. But it's too late now. Uh, you're here, and the pews are really narrow, and it's hard to sneak out uh, inconspicuously, so you're stuck. Um, and this morning, we don't really have the option of just playing the wheels on the bus song. And it's easy to make jokes about sex. I mean, who of us hasn't, even if we weren't proud of it, you know, j- laughed at a, a Michael Scott, that's what she said joke at some point. But when it really comes to talking about sex in our own lives, it's a lot more difficulty. And sex has great power for joy and good and beauty, but it also is the source of some of the most profound and lasting pain and heartache, of shame and loss. And I would venture to say that that none of us here this morning has been left unscathed when it comes to sex. I suspect that every one of us could, if we felt safe enough, tell a story of, of heartache related to sex in some way. You see, as human beings, we're so intrigued and fascinated by sex, and yet we so often lack the language and the categories to really talk well about it, to talk openly about it. And so why then are we talking about it at church on a Sunday morning, if that's the case? Well, two things. First of all, the Bible talks about it a lot, actually. And and if you are not that familiar with what the Bible teaches about it, you might be surprised at, at some of the things it has to say, especially if you've never read the book of Song of Solomon. And second, it's important to talk about it at church because our sexuality is such an integral part of what it means to be human. Whether you are older or younger, whether you are married or single, to avoid talking about it would be like to ignore a key facet of who God has made us to be. And that's why this message this morning is for everyone. everyone. Again, whether you are married or single, whether you are younger or older, 
every one of us is a human being made in God's image and is a sexual creature. And we cannot navigate life well until we understand God's design for sex. Now, I know some of you are probably here thinking, what is the Bible, this, you know, thousands-of-year-old document, does it really have anything to say to 21st century sexually liberated culture? And I'm sure I know some of you are in the perspective of saying, actually, isn't what the Bible teaches about sex outmoded at best or, or even at worst sort of dangerous or repressive? And maybe that might be the case or your way of thinking. And even if you, you don't believe that this book is God's word that reveals his design for life, I would hope that this morning as we engage in this, my hope would be that you would at least gain a better understanding of what the Bible teaches so that even at the end of the day, if you still do disagree, you're dis- disagreeing with a clear picture rather than with a caricature. You see, all of us have a story about sex and sexuality in our mind, a story that tries to make sense of of the transcendent delight and the often staggering pain that accompanies it. I mean, our modern Western cultures have a story. Non-Western cultures have stories too. And individually, we each have our own story, whether we're fully aware of it or not, about, about what sex is for, what it means, and how it's supposed to work best. And our goal this morning is to try to understand the story of sex in the Bible, God's story about this. What is his design for it? And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time looking at the Song of Solomon, but we're also going to look at Revelation and Genesis, because if we just tried to understand God's story, the story of the Bible about sex from the Song of Solomon, it would be like trying to understand your favorite novel, and if you just picked it up and read a few chapters in the middle. Without reading the beginning and the end— you might not be able to make sense of the middle, or or worse, you might misunderstand what the author is trying to say. And so as we look at the story of sex in the Bible, we're going to see first that sex tells a story in Genesis, that sex is about intimacy, it's about commitment, that sex isn't without struggles, and then finally in Revelation, we're going to see that sex is an appetizer. So our tendency is to make sex so small We simultaneously make it everything and nothing at the same time. We say it's the most important thing in life, and we also say, well, it's just merely an appetite, everything and nothing. But I hope what we'll see as we look through what the Bible has to say about it this morning, that we'll see that sex is about so much more. Sex is about so much more. So first, in Genesis chapter 2, sex tells a story. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And actually, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 2. If you want to pull one of those out, you can look at it. Um, Page 2 there. And what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that in God's creation design, sex is not an afterthought. Or is it merely just a pragmatic necessity? It is so much more. Look at verse 18, if you, if you have it open. Verse 18, the author writes this. This is, the, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. And in this moment, the text changes. You'll notice it breaks into poetry. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." 
You see, what we find in Genesis is that the grand crescendo of the creation account, the highest point in the whole story, is the, the culmination of it is a man and a woman, a bride and a groom, naked and unashamed. The culmination of creation is sexual consummation. That phrase, becoming one flesh, does, does mean more than mere physical consummation, but it doesn't mean less than that. And we're going to see throughout the story that, that it does mean a whole life union, but it doesn't mean less than this physical con- consummation. This sex was God's idea, and it was good. Remember, this is all in the story before the fall is introduced. So sin hasn't entered the world. Nothing is broken yet. This is world as it ought to be, and sex is a good part of it. You see, as intellectual and cultural heirs of uh, Greek and other ancient philosophy, those of us uh, in the West, and, and certainly I think many of us who have grown up in the church, have grown up with the mindset that, that sex and, or even just bodies in general are kind of are gross. That sure, maybe sex is kind of a biological necessity to keep the human race going, but beyond that, it's just degrading and, and should be avoided. Really, our attention should be on the spiritual, the immaterial, the things that, quote, really matter. But the Bible simply will not allow for this. Matter matters a lot to God. He made tons of it, and he cares for it, and he called it very good. You know, another common story in our culture about sex is that sex is merely just another appetite, like food or sleep. And while sex certainly is an appetite, it isn't merely an appetite. And it's actually, it's a different sort of appetite, right? So our appetite for sex is different from our other appetites like food and sleep in at least two ways. So first, we treat sex differently than, than uh, food, and, and it, it is different than food. Because while people tragically do regularly die of starvation, no one's death certificate has ever listed lack of sex as a cause of death, right? Second, we treat sex differently than from food or sleep. You know, no one really writes poetry and music and stories about food. And, and if they do, it's always kind of humorous, right? I mean, it's almost always something that's funny. But turn on any top 40 radio station, open up any book of poetry, and what do you find? You find songs constantly extolling sex and love and romance. There is something about it that is unique, that is way different than food or sleep. It means something so much more. So what is the Bible's story about sex? In the Bible, the story, its story about sex is that sex and sexuality, that they are a gift. They are a gift from God. Your sexuality, your maleness or femaleness, and all that that entails is a gift from God to be treasured, cherished, stewarded, protected, and in the proper context of one man and one woman who have covenanted together in marriage for life, a sexual relationship is to be enjoyed and celebrated. So what story are you telling yourself about sex? Are you living according to God's design? Um, Have you really understood his design? Maybe you just haven't really had a chance to really understand the design. If you have, what's keeping you from living fully into the design that God has for this part of our lives? So sex tells a story. Next we see that sex is about intimacy. So if you turn over to Song of Solomon, to chapter 7, it's on page 563 again in in the Pew Bibles, What we see is that the Song of Psalm is an entire book. It's devoted to sexual love. It's a vivid, poetic description of romantic and sexual intimacy. 
And, and like the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't know exactly who wrote it for sure. Um, it begins with the words, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, but the grammar is ambiguous. It could mean the song which belongs to Solomon or the song which is in honor of Solomon or about Solomon. So we're not sure who the author is for sure. Solomon's mentioned a number of times in the book, um, but it's not clear that he's who wrote it. Um, but no matter who wrote it, what you find as you read this book is you, you see there is not any blushing or prudishness to be found anywhere in it. It is a tasteful and beautiful but unashamedly erotic portrayal of sexual intimacy. Look at verses 6 through 9 in, uh, in chapter 7. Probably, I bet some of you didn't know this was in the Bible. Listen to these words. How beautiful you are. And how pleasant, O one, loved one, who— Excuse me. Let me start that over again. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I will say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and the mouth and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly from my beloved, gliding over the lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, this, is, this is God's word. And notice again, there's a celebration of the body here, right? That bodies are not bad things, that they are created as good things. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear about this. This, this couple, as they enjoy one another, they, they delight in one another's physicality. The book of Song of Solomon is filled with these descriptions of bodies. The body is something good. It's something to be celebrated, not something to be, to be thought of as gross or, or to be escaped. But marriage is about so much more than sex. And what you even get hints of that in the book because the language of Song of Solomon echoes the language of Genesis 1 and 2. If you read the book from beginning to end, there's all kinds of language of a garden, of, of, of a lush, unspoiled creation. You see, in sex, in the context of marriage, we get a tiny, tiny hint of Eden, a tiny glimpse of what it is to be naked and unashamed. But again, marriage is about so much more than just sex. And sex is just one of the many expressions of love in marriage. In fact, if if you think that marriage is about sex primarily, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, The comedian Jeff Foxworthy has a great line. He says, "Uh, getting married for the sex is like buying a 747 for the free peanuts. It's just, it's, it's such a tiny part of something that's so much bigger. But on the other hand, if you think that sex is irrelevant to a marriage, you will also be sorely disappointed. And there's a cycle to intimacy within marriage. As you honor and selfishly ser- selflessly serve one another, as you foster openness and transparency and vulnerability, and emotional intimacy will flourish, which naturally leads to physical intimacy, which in turn leads to greater emotional intimacy and unity and the ability to care for and sacrifice for one another, which in turn leads to greater emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. You see, there's this, ci- this cycle, this spiraling either up or down in the relationship. Tim and Kathy Keller, in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I would highly recommend and and which I've actually leaned heavily on in this message, it's it's fantastic. Um, They compare sex and marriage to oil on a machine. This is what Tim and Kathy write. They say, without it, the friction between all the moving parts will burn out the motor. Without joyful, loving sex, the friction in a marriage will bring about anger, resentment, harshness, and disappointment. Rather than being the commitment glue that holds you together, it can become a force 
to divide you. And so Tim and Kathy say, never give up working on your sex life. You know, sex in marriage takes work. It's not always easy. And what we see in the, the Bible story about sex is that sex is never first and foremost about me and my fulfillment. It's always focused on the other. And different genders have different, uh, different desires. Sex is always designed to be a self-giving act. It's never about me and getting what I want. It's about giving the other. Your focus must be on satisfying the other's desires, not on fulfilling your own. As human beings who are made in the image of God, in the image of a generous and self-giving God, this is how we are wired to work. Catholic philosopher uh, Peter Kreeft, he's a C.S. Lewis scholar, he's such a brilliant philosopher, he writes this, he says, the highest pleasure always comes in self-forgetfulness. The highest pleasure always comes in self-forgetfulness. He says, self always spoils its own pleasure. Pleasure is like light. If you grab it, you miss it. If you try to bottle it, you only get darkness. But if you let it pass, you catch the glory. The self has a built-in God-imaging design of self-fulfillment by self-forgetfulness. Do you hear that line? Self-fulfillment by self-forgetfulness. Pleasure through unselfishness. And then he points this out, which is so key. He says, this is not the self-conscious self-sacrifices of the do-gooder, but the spontaneous, unconscious generosity of the lover. This isn't the martyr who sort of, I'll do the dishes because I'm such a great person. No, this is not the self-conscious self-sacrifice of the do-gooder, but the spontaneous, unconscious generosity of the lover. And that's why if, if you're single here this morning or for whatever reason you're married and, and sexually frustrated, that actually it's not the end of the world. And that isn't to say it isn't incredibly difficult. And all of us at various points in our life find ourselves probably in a place where we have less fulfillment sexually than we would want. But ultimately, sex is about intimacy. And while it may be difficult, you can find intimacy in other ways. Intimacy is the goal, not sex. Whether you're single, married, divorced, no matter what category you find yourself in, the key thing to relationship is intimacy, not sex. So whether we're married or single, we can't lose sight of that. And next we see in the story that sex is about commitment. You see, if sex is designed to powerfully draw together a man and a woman, commitment only makes sense. Again, if you look in Song of Solomon chapter 4, or chapter 8, verse 4, you see this. Um, the, The author writes, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir or awaken love until it pleases. You see, there's a time and place for sexual love. And don't wake it up until the time is right. And so what is the right time? Look down to verse 6 in chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. In this cultural context, a seal on your arm, a seal on your heart, it's a sign of commitment of belonging, a binding contract. Love is as strong as death. What is more certain and permanent than death? And when there's not security in the relationship, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. You see, with sexual love, no amount of waters can quench the flame once it's started. Again, Tim and Kathy write here that's so insightful. They say sex is understood as both a sign of personal, legal, whole life union and a means to accomplish that union. 
The Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. In other words, Tim and Kathy say don't become physically naked and vulnerable to one another without being vulnerable in every other way. So don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way. You see, when we have sex with someone outside of the context of the commitment and covenant of marriage, we are saying by our actions to the other person that I don't love you enough to commit my whole life to you. I'm willing to give you my body, but I'm not willing to commit my finances or I'm not willing to commit my emotions. I'm willing to give you part, but not all. And this is why that sex outside of the context of marriage causes such immense heartache and pain. Because sex is the method that God invented to do whole life commitment. Even when we use it wrongly, it still functions to build these bonds that are so impossibly difficult to break and so painful when they are broken. Sex is designed to entangle our lives in ways that are not meant to be separated. And it works that way even outside of the covenant of marriage. And so when it does break, it's so painful. So you see, the Bible doesn't counsel uh, sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex. Actually, it counsels it because it has such a high view of sex and what it accomplishes. You know, it's the things that we care most about that we guard and protect most closely, right? I mean, when's the last time you were uh, driving in your car and you saw a big pile of gravel or asphalt surrounded by security guards with guns and, and fences and, and lookout towers, right? I mean, of course not. We don't, we don't guard dirt. But what if you go to Fort Knox or, or you drive by the Federal Reserve Bank in downtown? There's fences and guards and cameras everywhere. We put the most boundaries, the most protections around the things that are most valuable, the things that are most precious, And if that's true, then we must protect sex like the precious gift that it is. Again, quoting the Kellers, they're just so good at framing this. They say, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to give your entire self to another human being. For two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, exclusively to you. And they say, you must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. So if you're married this morning, never stop working on your sex life. It's designed to renew the covenant, to foster intimacy, to be a place of laughter and trust and unity. A seal as strong as death, as fierce as the grave, unquenchable flame. Uh, But but let's be honest, which... uh, Many of us experience something that's far from that. For some of us, even those of us who have been married, sex has always been lousy, even in marriage. There's been disagreement among spouses and wounded feelings and hurt and failed expectations. So, so much pain. And when I talk to couples whose marriages are struggling, money or sex are always almost at the root of it. There's so much pain. And and if you're single this morning and you're longing for sexual intimacy, I mean, you know the Sunday school answer, right? Like, wait until you're married. I've heard this. But deep down, maybe you're just not sure it's possible or or even worthwhile. And and listen, I mean, I I was single until I was 28. I mean, I wondered, is this worth it? Is this possible? But listen, 
God's design for sex is not to prevent joy, but to preserve joy. Not to prevent joy, but to preserve it. To give us the fullest joy and truest wholeness and intimacy. So sex is about intimacy and commitment, but as we've already seen hinted all along the way here, that sex also isn't without its struggles. It isn't without its struggles. I mean, for starters, if Solomon was actually the author of this book, we're not sure he is, but if he was, I mean, this guy, right, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, this guy hasn't gotten the sex thing quite figured out. This is not the, the model for sexuality, right? I mean, if he did write it, he probably wrote it when he, when he was very young. But at the end of his life, it just kind of all falls apart. It all falls apart. He's not our role model. If you look at all the people in the Bible, Solomon is not the role model for sexual fidelity and commitment But no matter who wrote it, even within the book, even in this book that celebrates all the goodness of sexual love and intimacy, you see in chapter 5, I would encourage you to look at it this week, you see this young couple and they struggle. There's a distance and a conflict. There's unfulfilled desire. Even in the book, you see that that sex isn't without its struggles. You see our world is broken and, and so are we. And even the best that we have is broken. And the reality is God's greatest gifts are also those that have the potential to cause the most hurt, right? The stronger the force, the, most, the more powerful the force, the more potential for joy and pain. And C.S. Lewis points out, he says, you know, an ant can't do very much good or bad. You know, a dog can do a little bit more good or bad. And then you take a person who can do all kinds of incredible good or bad. The more powerful the force, the more strong the thing, the more potential for brokenness as well as for glory. And, and recently, one of our, our pastors from our Olathe campus was down on the plaza and, and took this picture. This was at the, uh, at the Barnes & Noble on the plaza. And it's just kind of an ironic uh, that these two books are put side by side together on the display there at Barnes & Noble. So on the one hand, you have The Five Love Languages, this best-selling Christian book about learning how to love your spouse and grow in intimacy. And, and then on the other side there, you have Fifty Shades of Grey, this international bestseller, and some of you have probably read it, um, which is a book that probably at, at best we could say has a, a diminished view of sexuality. But, but I mean, what an ironic picture this is. It, it captures the tension, the struggle in our world. We want what is good and right. We sense that sex is about so much more. And yet it's also so difficult that we're, that we're willing to so quickly settle for something less, less than God's good design for it. And let me just say, if you're single and struggling, if you are married and struggling, there are so many people who are married who wish they were single and so many single people who wish they are married. We all sort of want what we don't, what we don't have or what we can't get. We are all broken, aren't we? This morning, if you are here and you struggle with lust or pornography or if you just can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend or if you've had an affair or some of you are probably maybe even in the middle of one right now, Maybe you've been abused or you struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe there have been times when you've been completely overwhelmed by past mistakes and shame that comes with wounded sexuality. Maybe your marriage is far from what you hoped it would be. If you are in any of those places this morning, let me just tell you loud and clear that you are not alone. And if there's sin involved, you are not beyond forgiveness. In the gospel, there is always hope. In the gospel, there is always hope. 
Never give up. We all, we all struggle in this area of our lives. None of us does this right completely. And as we struggle, we've got to talk to someone. Talk to someone else. If, if the church can't handle conversations, frank conversations about the brokenness of sex that we all have experienced in one way or another, then what really good are we? And talk to me. I mean, I, I promise you there is nothing that you could say that would shock or surprise me. Talk to someone you trust. I mean, maybe you need counseling. Maybe there's some resources that would be helpful. We Actually, there's up on the website right now, we posted uh, an article called Sex as a Gift. There's a lot of books, resources, web uh, articles, um, it links to counselors, all kinds of things that you can, you can plug into to find out more. And maybe there's a conversation that you really need to have with, with a spouse or with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And sometimes the hardest part of having that conversation, right, is just, is just introducing the topic of conversation. Um, but we've done that for you here this morning, uh, so it's already, it's already there, and, and I encourage you to have that conversation. Maybe it's a, about a dissatisfaction in the way that your marital relationship was working, or, or maybe in how your, your life together as boyfriend and girlfriend is functioning. Have the conversation. Talk with someone. And know whatever your current struggles, your past issues, shame, hurt, abuse that's been done to you, know that our Heavenly Father always holds His arms open and longs to embrace you, to heal. He longs to create beauty from whatever ashes are in your life. He can do it. He does do it. I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen it happen in the lives of many other people. His grace is simply amazing. And it can heal the deepest wounds. So never lose hope. There's so much shame and so much pain around this conversation. But know that the gospel is sufficient for it. It can heal. It can bring about change and transformation. You see, ultimately, sex is about so much more. Sex is an appetizer for the oneness, the intimacy, the joy of knowing and being known that we all long for, but only get glimpses of, of here and now. You see, sex is the appetizer, but it's not the meal. It's the appetizer, but it's not the meal. Let me explain. When you go to dinner, uh, you go to a restaurant and, and go there for dinner, um, you, sometimes you order an appetizer, but the appetizer isn't the meal. It's, it's not the main thing. You know, when, when I go to uh, the Capitol Grill, I mean, they make a nice soup, but I'm there for the filet mignon, right? I mean, that is the goal. And sex is only an appetizer. It's not the meal. If you turn, uh, you don't have to necessarily turn there with me, but in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis, and he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, ultimately marriage and sex are an anticipation of the great marriage between Christ and the church. They point to something beyond themselves. And in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, that tells us about Jesus' return, it speaks about the great marriage supper, a grand wedding reception called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb is a way of referring to Jesus. And listen to these words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This passage of the Bible is where the hallelujah chorus 
from Handel's Messiah comes from. It's a moment of incomprehensible joy and glory, and we as the church are the bride. This is the union that we long for, the meal for which it sometimes feels like we are starving. So why did God make sex? For procreation, yes. For pleasure, absolutely. But sex is about so much more. God invented sex so that he would have a metaphor, a signpost for what we really long for. Everything in creation is ultimately about God. Everything on planet earth is designed to draw us to our creator, even sex. And you may be sitting there saying, Bill, but what if I'm single? And are you saying that, that I don't, I'm not a signpost or, or my life doesn't anticipate? Or, or am I missing out on the appetizer? Well, sometimes you go to a restaurant, right? And, and you don't even order the appetizer, But the meal is the main course, and it isn't diminished by the fact that you haven't had an appetizer. And in fact, singleness, too, is a powerful witness to the truth about Christ in the church. If marriage is a picture of the fulfillment of Christ in the church coming together at the end of time, singleness is a vivid picture of the longing that we all experience as we wait for that moment to come. Both singleness and marriage tell us a profound truth about both the fulfillment and the longing that we all have for creation to be brought together, for it to be redeemed. So whether you're single or married, remember, you must remember, we must remember that sex is about so much more. Because if all you ever eat is the appetizer, you will never be full. Only the meal, only the marriage supper of the lamb can satisfy your deepest hunger for intimacy, your deepest longing for pleasure, for knowing, for unrelenting, never-ceasing, ever-deepening love. And communion is just a tiny taste of that great meal, a tiny taste of the great marriage celebration that we all look forward to. And this morning, as you come to the communion table, taste and touch and see the good news that there is one who has sacrificed everything to bring him to yourself, to make you beautiful. Know the forgiveness of the one who removes every spot and every shame and every sorrow. And glory in the knowledge that Jesus is the one person who can truly say the words that your heart longs to hear. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's the one person who can say those words, and they will always be true. See, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the blood of Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. Know that this morning. You don't have to be a member at Christ's community to celebrate communion with us, all followers of Jesus, all who know that he is the one, the only one who can rescue and redeem are welcome at his table. Of course, you're always welcome to stay in your seat and and to pray and reflect. And when you come, come in groups of four or five and gather around the table and take together as a group. Dip the wine or dip the water into the juice or water into the juice. Dip the bread into the juice and and then partake as a group together. Um, I know the pews are narrow. Uh, If you need to kind of step over someone as you're getting in and out, it's all right. We're used to that. Take your time. Don't feel rushed. 
Also, there will be several of us in the back during communion, um, and we would love to pray with you. I just know in a message like this, it can bring up so much pain, so much hurt, whether with you or with, with a spouse, with a, a, a daughter, a son, that, that you, you're struggling in this area. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. So myself and some others will be in the back. would welcome you after you take communion or, or even if you don't take communion, just to go to the back and, and ask for prayer. We'd love to, to even just listen and have, sometimes it's all the meaning in the world to have another human being look at you and tell you that God loves you and he forgives you. So if, you, if that's something where you, just, you feel heavy this morning, I would invite you to come and receive prayer. So come now to the Lord's table and taste and touch the goodness of the gospel.